Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Marina Sharp. On the show this week, police brutality gets a dress rehearsal in Riotsville, USA, and I talk to the documentary's director. Murakami is adapted to the big screen in Blind Willow's Leaping Woman. And on Film Club, it's another Murakami adaptation in Norwegian Wood. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Well, welcome back to you both, both familiar people to anyone who's even uh, an unregular listener. Marina, congratulations in order for you because you've got a new column in the magazine and that's just started in the recent issue. Thank you. Yes, I do. It's called Sticky Gold Stars, which is I've I've taken that from the film Notes on a Scandal, <laughs> where um, Judy Dench's character just adds these gold star stickers to her diary every time she has like a memory with Kate Blanchett's character. I thought it was kind of like a fun title for a, a queer column. Yeah, I mean, it does sound amazing. What's the subject of the first one? So for the first one, I was in Berlin for the Berlin Film Festival. I mean, I was kind of seeking out queer LGBTQ plus cinema. And that's kind of like a, a roundup of the best things I saw there. Wow. Well, I mean, something to look out for. It's a really stacked issue. If I do say so myself, I'm in it with uh, one of my more embarrassing childhood memories, which uh, I won't get into now. <laughs> but Michael, welcome back. Oh, it's such a joy to be here as always. Thank you, Leila. Oh, and how is everything going with you? Podcasting away still? People can still hear your dulcet tones over at Gibliotech? Yeah, books and screenings and podcasts so we've got all sorts going on you know we, we have pretty regular Ghibli Attack related anime screenings now we're showing the end of Evangelion next week on Tuesday 4th of April at the Prince Charles and I'd plug it but it's already sold out <laughs> and this is a very straight very, very strange experience because this is a film that is, has got cult appeal but it is if I had to describe it it is the retelling of the final two episodes of a very controversial but much loved anime series from the 90s so it couldn't be more niche but there's clearly demand for it uh, it sold out so quickly that the Prince Charles put on like a week of daily screenings afterwards so the fans are out there um, and we're also doing screenings at the BFI IMAX uh, at the South Bank as well so we've just shown your name and weathering with you and we're following that up with the director's new film 
Suze May, which I think you'll be reviewing in a couple of weeks' time, probably on the podcast. I believe so. I mean, yeah, the appetite's definitely there. You just have to look at My Neighbor Totoro. I think that the stage production came like the fastest selling show that the RSC had ever done. Yeah. And did you see the news that, that this very morning, as we record, that they're bringing it back to the Barbican I did. for a second run? I, I will. I will be returning. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but like generally, I mean, it's not all good news in the world of animation. The new Pixar trailer dropped and uh, people are saying it's pretty ugly. And I am and I am people. <laughs> so you think it looks ugly? this is elemental, which I mean, it's a hard sell anyway, because it seems to be like inside out meets Zootopia meets turning red where they're stacking a high concept on top of many different ideas, aren't they? So the story is that it's set in this world where all the characters are elements, but they're classical elements, not periodic elements. So it's water, earth and fire. And what you hear in the trailer is elements don't mix, which to anybody who's even had any science (laughs) (laughs) education Mm. knows, elements do mix. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, tell that to steam. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, they've set themselves a animation challenge haven't they to make all their characters either be watery or fiery or earthen in some way Uh, and you think that looks a bit ugly Layla do you I gotta say it just feels that like perhaps maybe I was spoiled by the spider-verse and the new trailer for that Mm. looks amazing but it does feel that a lot of mainstream animation is not pushing the boundaries I guess yeah it's it's lacking in style a bit isn't it and spider-verse definitely was a sea change moment when that came out and I guess the sequel yeah we're all excited for that aren't we We are indeed, but we are also excited for Riotsville USA, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady 8Q page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Welcome to Riotsville, USA, a turning point in American history where the protest movements of the late 1960s came into conflict with increasingly militarized police departments. Focusing on an unearthed military training footage from the army-built model towns called Riotsville, where military and police were trained to maintain a law and order by any means necessary. Before we get into our review, I spoke to its brilliant director of the documentary, Sierra Pentagill. Hi. Hi, good morning. And I mean, has there been any surprises for you in terms of the reaction that you've been getting from kind of those like more public facing things like the Q&As and the introductions? I, I, I don't know if it's a surprise, but it's been really heartening to hear, you know, I think the time when I started the film from when it came out, the language was, I think, more familiar to a lot of people. And so we were able to have really robust conversations about defunding the police and all the various ways that the state sort of upholds inequality in a, in a, in a pretty vibrant set of conversations. Yeah. I don't know about surprise. I just like, it's hard to predict who a film's going to resonate with and how. And it was a really incredible team that made it together. And so making sure that we together felt like it was doing what we wanted it to. And it had an internal logic that was reflective of the process we went through, you know, and it obviously spoke to truth outside of itself, but it was really validating to have it come out and have young people in particular feel like it said something very powerful about the present tense. Well, it was surprising to keep hearing these phrased in this way, but a handful of 
people in their early 20s say, it makes me feel less crazy. Like we're not making this up. The things that we feel sort of like in an affective way that, you know, this is, this is the country we live in. This is what our experiences are like. Yeah. I mean, I know that like gaslighting is kind of very overused as a term, but it does feel like there's something very powerful in this that you're getting to a truth that was just so consistently denied in terms of the state and the militarization of state. And they just wouldn't acknowledge the sort of lived reality of so many people. While it was happening, I, I, it's important to me that I like, bring it up every time I talk about the film, that everything in the film, all the material is either from broadcast TV or the military, because I don't want to fall into this idea of a suppressed history or a covert one or one that was sort of wrapped in the cloak of secrecy by the CIA. This was a public history that, as you said, was sort of like gaslit out of a kind of common understanding rather than being some plausible deniability in that like we couldn't have known these were covert programs, if that makes sense. You know, I I really wanted to present a public history that hadn't been remembered or preserved properly or you know you feel these two narratives fighting each other in 68 and then you you know we're living through the way it's been resolved with a lot of the nuance of that conversation lost when you first came to that footage was it clear what the kind of narrative you could create from it would be no so i came across that footage in 2014 and it really took the full i would say six years for me to to make sense of it i mean there were sort of two parallel tracks one was trying to find the like literal context of it. Like, what is this? What is it? How is it funded? Where are we in both geographical sense and a policy sense? Who are these people? You know, just finding like sort of the nuts and bolts about what this program was took a while. And it wasn't until I think 2020, um, Stuart Schrader, who came on as a consultant for the film, wrote a book called Badges Without Borders, which is an incredible history of how American policing and how it's both starts in imperial sense, you know, was really closely linked to, to Vietnam, for example, and how that policing kind of forms a circular, both exporting our policing and then importing what we're visiting upon other nations. Anyway, his book was the only thing I had found that was really investigating what Riotsville was in any depth. Yeah, so there's the, sorry, the two tracks, the historical track, and then the larger meaning that this, that these recreations would have and the policy would have. Because I think there's, I mean, there's any number of like deeply fucked up programs that the United States has developed against its own people. And I wanted to make this more than just an investigation into like yet another one. And it felt like when I saw the footage, you know, I had to get it transferred from film without seeing it first. And when it came to me, I was just really struck by, I mean, it took a long time to sort of figure out what I was looking at emotionally as well. Like it it really vacillates very quickly between absurdity and and depravity. And there's so much violence. And it's also a big joke at the same time, which feel actually very closely linked. You know, I felt like it was such a rare thing to get a visualization of what the state thinks of its own citizens. Rarely do you get them basically putting on a play where they're writing the script and building the sets and and hiring the actors and and dressing them and then playing things out as they think the world operates. And so, you know, all of those elements hold sort of a lot of, to me, like rare clues, even, you know, the 
name on the bank in Riotsville is Hope. You know, there's there's so much cruelty in a lot of those decisions. I, I think that took much, much longer in terms of the filmmaking process is trying to figure out, like, what are we looking at? What do, what do we make of this now? What do we do with this? And that, you know, I didn't want it to just be a, a, a historical film that was in its own bubble. You know, it's such a gorgeous film as well as being historically significant. I mean, I found myself trying to describe what Riot Spell was like. I don't know, that kind of uncanny, there's a bit of a sort of almost like Lynchian rot in the foundations of this like perfect Americana. I mean, what what was it that like struck you when you first got to see what it actually looked like? It's funny because the things that first struck me, um, like I said, where, where it quickly goes from humor to, to violence, the black soldier leaning out the window of the bus and screaming his head off. And then there's a, a white soldier in the window right behind him who's like doing a very performative version of the same thing. And yeah, those moments where it's you just shift between like, you know, is this an uncanny <laughs> valley? Is this a, you know, this isn't reality, but then you suddenly feel like the, the world kind of breaks punch its way through. I should say also, I initially heard about Riotsville from um, a book by the historian Rick Perlstein, Nixon Land. And he was sort of just listed a whole bunch of overreactive programs in the summer of 67 that flooded uh, a ton of money into the development of the carceral state. But, you know, he didn't go into detail about what Riotsville was. And only as the film was being released and I was starting to do press, I went back to his text just to remind myself. When I read it after finishing the film, I was like, oh, that's what we were doing. So there was a similar commission to the Kerner Commission convened after the Newark uprising, Newark, New Jersey uprising called the Hughes Commission. And it says that the single continuously lawless element operating in the community is the police force itself. And then its conclusion is the question is whether we should resort to illusion or finally come to grips with reality. And then Pearlstein says the public was choosing illusion. And then Riotsville is like one of many things that he lists after that. And that feels exactly like what you're watching in the film is watching this choice of illusion and the fact that Riotsville looks so uncanny. It looks like this gross, funhouse, dystopian fantasy. That's what a violent illusion looks like in this country. I feel like I had to make a really maximalist film, <laughs> like stuff it with everything possible, including the former names of these military bases, which were named after enslavers and, you know, making sure that we hit on the commercial appeal, the gold rush towards manufacturing tear gas and police weapons, the sort of trickle down effect of a moral panic that makes its way to white housewives in the Midwest who are taking target practice. The way that this that this footage is the conduit to like every system and how it, they're all sort of reinforced was a really important thing to make sure the film was was kind of touching everything. I'm, I'm glad you had that ambition. I mean, like one of the things that I've found like really frustrating over the past few years is like, because I'm very interested in civil rights and I read a lot about it, but like the way that it feels like those movements of the 60s have been made so much cozier, I think, than they really are. I mean, if you look at like a figure like Martin Luther King, he's sort of, you know, I remember when Black Lives Matter was happening and you'd kind of get people on the right who would just be tweeting a quote completely out of context and <laughs> getting all the kind of like brutality of, of, of the time. Do you think it's like important that we actually confront what the truth of that was? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I've thought about it a lot with the abolitionist movement in the 1860s in the United States that, you know, we have this idea that we all would have been anti-slavery activists when, you know, that's a lot of very dangerous direct action highly illegal, putting your life on the line. At least early abolitionists were part of like a pretty fringe religious group. You know, there was, there's a way that we all like to sort of self-satisfy and think that we would have been part of these movements as if they were like safe and at no risk to the people who were engaging in them and that the the morality is so clear. And I, I mean, I feel like we're facing the same thing in the U.S. now where like I was reading this morning, you know, there was a, yet another school shooting yesterday in Nashville. And this writer, I really like um, Patrick Blanchfield, who writes about gun violence in the U.S. and wrote, you know, the U.S. is the largest manufacturer of guns. It has more guns per capita and total than any other nation, and also by far the largest amount of people in prison. And to pretend that those aren't related. And just like react to these crises as if they're sort of individual self-enclosed, decontextualized tragedies rather than a system that is really enforcing itself in this way, you know? I think to to live in a country when so many people are unjustly behind bars and just accept it as like the price that we're paying for whatever. I mean, we've sort of lived through like this huge civil uprising in the form of Black Lives Matter, but it feels that whilst your film is ultimately like triumphant when it comes to riots and the power of rioting, that was one where it felt like we experienced it and then nothing changed. I mean, do you just feel like these systems that you're kind of, these are almost like patient zero, a lot of these systems for kind of what are immovable problems of the present day. I mean, do you think like the experience of going through that civil unrest kind of changed your perspective on this? It did. Yeah, in lots of ways. And I really implore everyone listening. <laughs> um, uh, Toby Haslett, who wrote the narration to the film, wrote a really incredible piece on the uprisings of 2020 and a larger historical context for M plus one called Magic Actions. I feel like he does such a great job of evaluating the kind of defanging of the uprising of 2020, you know, what it means when people in almost every city in the country are in the streets and then it becomes reframed as nonviolent protest, you know, at the Democratic National Convention and how these movements can get so easily co-opted. You know, I've been thinking about, I mean, it's so bleak, but I don't know if you've been following what's happening in Cop City in Atlanta. Part of that, which, you know, is the building of a kind of proposed riotsville amongst a, a larger police training facility on a publicly owned forest in Atlanta, where now 40 people, I believe, have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism, which carries a 35-year sentence. And one protester was shot and killed by the police. And it appears that he was sitting cross-legged with his arms in the air at the time. The police foundation that is paying for that facility, the majority of that facility, is not a public police force. It's a it's the foundation funded by a bunch of corporations. So that's Home Depot, Wells Fargo Bank, Equifax, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the main newspaper in Atlanta, which is pretty bleak. Their parent company funds the foundation. And someone pointed out, these are, many of these corporations issued their, you know, solidarity statements after Black Lives or during Black Lives Matter, which everyone knew were cynical at the time. But like, 
I think was very visible in 2020 was the kind of co-opting of movements. I don't know. Making the film made me feel like things are very possible. That what the what riots will document is the making of a system very quickly, as I said, um, the building of a carceral state, what it looks like when a, a country is able to put a massive amount of money into something. And therefore, it makes me feel like it's very possible to undo it. I'm not a strategist. So I can't tell you how to do that. But I do feel like there's a lot of hope in the movie, even maybe perversely. I, felt that. I mean, I did, I did also have to say, I got some humor out of it. I did have a, I had a laugh out loud moment um, when I think it's Reverend Albert Cleeg who says that, you know, the state's never heard about police brutality. Like, <laughs> yeah, they don't know what it is. They don't know what we're talking. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one of my favorite things was in watching a lot of footage was finding how frustrated and annoyed and outraged people were. Um, particularly black activists from having to repeat themselves over and over again. You know, like even in 67, they're like, yeah, the police have never heard of police brutality. What are we talking about? Um, there's also this quote from uh, Charles Hamilton, who was in one of the PBL panels. Mm-hmm. This quote didn't make the film, but he says, it's a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture shown over and over again, the same analysis, the same inaction, you know, when the Kerner Commission was announced. And, and just that thought of like, here we go again. Hearing that expressed with such weariness 60 years ago, I mean, that feels really, that gives me a lot of like strength, you know, the idea, even like the defund conversation, hold on, what do you mean by defund, you know, as if this hasn't been going on and hasn't been like clearly expressed, but it's just a way of stopping sort of further understanding of it, you know, like the the very end of the film, Bob Reed, that great reporter with the sunglasses, I spoke to him as I was finishing the film and he was 18, I think he was 18, you know, and he very clearly outlines to the white reporter what's happening, why it's happening. And then the reporter goes, well, anyone can say, guess we'll never know. And it's, <laughs> it does feel like that, that is what we, what happens over and over again. You know, there's a question, a good faith answer, and then the pretending it's, it's never been said. Mm. Uh, I mean, like, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the tone, like, particularly with the narration, which you know, Toby wrote. But, you know, I imagine it was all kind of collaborative. And then it's voiced by someone else as well. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, watch your uh, documentary, The Reagan Show. And that felt more you were trying to kind of present balance, whilst this seemed more righteous. Again, like, you use the word weary. There's like a weariness to the narration. What were you trying to get across kind of tonally with it? I I do think that by having so much archival that we let play for so long, you know, something that's very important to me in in archival filmmaking is presenting footage that is unfamiliar, maybe unexpected, stuff that's not been seen very much before. I, I find that often when I'm working on archival films or watching them, archival footage is is meant to be illustration rather than scenes that you're watching play out and trying as an audience member to understand what's happening as you would in any other film scene. And so that was motivated a lot of our editing is a fine material that you're not, you don't think you know already, because when you are illustrating something, you're really drawing on someone's preconceptions and stereotypes and, and relying on that as a shorthand to get to some other idea pretty quickly. And so making sure that nothing in this film felt like uh, sort of predictable so that 
an audience could actually watch it and and try to figure out what they're watching. So on one hand, I do feel like the film gives a lot of leeway to people to be able to sort your your own way through and it kind of asks for that. The, the material is so violent and is so overwhelmingly pointing to a like repressive system that has killed so many people to leave that anger out or to, and to leave that conclusion out and you know i think without the narration it's um it resonates with the present tense but the, the film you know it doesn't make sense to me to make a historical film unless you're trying to understand something about the world as we're living in it you know that's what this film was for me and for my collaborators a way of understanding and to not include that level of reflection felt just dishonest so toby and i started like exchanging readings and and talking about different ways the narration could work i was even open to there not being any narration and toby was the writer in a more you know editorial sense so uh toby was right we were nails sent back an edit with some holes in it and was like maybe narration can go here but i don't know we could also move it around and so it was a really circular collaborative process where the the writing and the film's edit and story evolved together rather than one being kind of placed on top of the other collaborating with incredible people obviously and being able to actually really have your own voice speak to this i mean do you feel like this film really captures the sort of documentary filmmaker you want to be yeah and i had this feeling like nobody ever lets me make something again at least it's all in there you know and some of the maximalism was <laughs> towards that like I'll just leave you with like one of my favorite filmmakers is Manson Ben. You know, he kind of very much said that like he sees films as a tool of his politics, not politics as a tool of his films. Like where mm. do you kind of land on that? I, I love that line. I don't know. I, I wrestle with this all the time. Like filmmaking is a tool of my politics for sure, but it is not enough. Um, and it's not a replacement for other kinds of political activity. And so I, I think, if I'm going to make something and put it out into the world and rope people around me into it, um, it better be doing something for someone outside of myself. And it better not be reinforcing bad narratives, you know, like uh, do no harm. But I also don't want to overblow what I think the potential of art is especially in a time where people's access in the U.S. especially, there are very few film journalists left. There are very few independent local newspapers left. It's harder to see films in theaters. Even archives are owned by the same, like, three corporations. Like, you know, we're really fighting an environment that doesn't help frame art in a way that allows for its subversive nature to be um, fully experienced. So, I think this is like something I'll probably wrestle with until till I die. Um, no, but the what to Tolstoy, doesn't it? It's like the whole thing of like, should creativity be ethical? People act like that. Yeah. No, and the ethics there is. I don't know that, but I think documentary is particularly unethical most of the time. It's partly why I don't make films with living people often because it's such a that i take that responsibility really seriously if you're going to make a documentary you're going to make a film you're going to put in the world it better be top notch um otherwise you even gently are doing perpetuating harms thank you so much i love the film really nice talking to you this is one of the more interesting and like thoughtful conversations i've had about the film in a long time so well, thank, thank you, you. 
So Marina, I mean, this was not something I knew anything about. I thought I was pretty well versed in the sort of civil rights and protest movements of the 1960s, but this still really shocked me. Did you know anything about this sort of strange history? No, I had no idea. And you're so right. That is so something that even if you're not like completely well versed in kind of like civil rights history, like surely that is something that should be common knowledge. But yeah, it's just like absurd, isn't it? Just like these playgrounds where soldiers can just go and like act out these fantasies of violence and like with officials being like sat in the bleachers like cheering on like yeah it's just really insidious yeah it does feel like it's it's very strange because the sort of place itself is so colorful and kind of suburban and it's idyllic looking but like there's this dark dark underbelly I mean, Michael, for you, I mean, in terms of just like the composition of it as a, as a documentary, were you impressed? I mean, it's really fascinating as an archival project, right? So the director, uh, her previous film was The Reagan Show, which I think we reviewed on this podcast many, many years ago. But that's what she's very good at going into archives and finding material and then repurposing it to tell a story or shine a light on areas of history that we may not know about. So the presentation of the material is really fascinating, really queasily strange, right? Because the very opening scenes, are before you even know really what you're looking at, you're looking at this facsimile of any town USA with the general store and the barbershop and people walking up and down the street, you know something's off. But then uh, the film uses that material to make a much bigger point about the broken society that is the United States of America and how the use of Riotsville, they create a place called Riotsville in the same way that they create the fear of rioting, of civil disorder, in order to fuel a sort of military industrial machine that is still prevalent today that suppresses and actively works against any meaningful change in society. It's a really fascinating discourse to have as part of this documentary. The presentation is really interesting. I think as it gets on, there's a lot of um, very minimalist, burbly, industrial sound soundtrack stuff here, as well as very meaningful but quite leaden voiceover which at times works suits really well. But after a while, for me, felt a little bit um, stayed maybe. But the message rings so true. I mean, that narration, I, I actually really did enjoy that kind of world-weary tone of the narrator. I mean, Maroon, what did you make of it all? It's, it's been written by, a, I believe, a journalist called uh, Toby Hazlitt. I thought it was really impressive and how it strikes that balance between archive and kind of like essayistic narration. I thought it was very like carefully constructed and executed and it felt like really, really focused. But I also thought it was a really interesting way of using the archive. There's this uh, sequence where it's like a really blown out, super, super zoomed in image. And it's very pointless. It's just a bunch of dots, basically. And they slowly kind of shift in density and contrast. And there's this like play of light. And then suddenly the image changes without us realizing. And, it, and it's just so seamless. And I just thought it was a really interesting way of using the archive and, and playing with, with light and photography to kind of show how history is this kind of like double exercise in in revealing and obscuring facts. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, beautifully put. I mean, clearly, Michael, that she's not just trying to kind of talk about this thing that happened in past, but she's very much speaking to sort of present day nightmares. I mean, do you think that any of that was overstated or were you kind of convinced by it? I mean, I'm very convinced by it and more in the sense that um, history isn't a straight line, it's cyclical. This idea that the conversations we're having now on a daily basis from about everything from racial discrimination to the disparity of, you know, of wealth to gun control, all this stuff, not only has been present in the media, but has been talked about by politicians. And the, the, the inciting incident for this is the um, Commission on Civil Disorder, the Kerner Commission, that where they publish a paperback book that becomes a bestseller, which lays out, admittedly in some quite soft or coded terms, but lays out major ways that you could fix American society to at least help some of these tensions. And the, 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 the film also has lots of footage from the precursor to PBS. And that's some of the most lightning rod stuff for me, because you have television that's talking eloquently and openly and with a sort of fiery spirit about what's happening outside their window. And that's not necessarily you know, what we see in documentaries about the 1960s, right? Or even films about the 1960s. We have another one coming up later in this podcast where we have a sort of pop culture view of the period. And this is showing us some new stuff. And well, when you say, is it relevant to today? It's absolutely relevant to today because it shows that there are, well, the, the, the arguments, I think it's quite a persuasive one. It, it says that there are these forces behind the establishment, the status quo, that have their priorities and they will always push them. And if that's the the link it draws, for example, between the creation of fear of a racial disorder, racial riots, linking to the rise of tear gas as an American industry that had been used abroad and it starts being used on home soil, the rise of uh, the overfunding of police enforcement around the country. I think it draws those lines really well in a way that does does lead all the way up to today. Did it kind of speak to, I mean, I know this isn't a politics podcast, but did that also make you a little weary of some of the things that are happening on this side of the Atlantic? Oh my God, absolutely, right? It, 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 it's the sort of thing that, um, you know, no matter how clearly, no matter how eloquently you can state your case and no matter how well-organised your activism is, the, the establishment will always find a way to to paint it as disorder, right? There are whole sequences here where there's, it focuses on events in Miami around the Republican uh, National Convention, where there was ac- activism there, which was clearly stating what they wanted. They had meetings with local governments, and then overnight, it was changed from being something actually quite progressive and quite pragmatic to bringing in the National Guard, which is what they do now. They don't, I mean, they, gosh, I'm starting to sound like Russell Brand, aren't I? But no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those documentaries where you can't help but feel that um, democracy is broken, right? Is that a too weary statement to, to have? Not not from me looking out the window. <laughs> but I, uh, Maria, I suppose it's a little bit different with documentary because we sort of do end up sometimes criticising films for being a little more heavy-handed in their messaging. But with like documentary, there is a sort of responsibility to tell the truth and to actually maybe be a part of activism itself. But do you feel like that balance was struck or was it a bit heavy handed? No, I I think it was definitely struck. I mean, obviously, like now more than ever, we're we're so like bombarded with these images in media. So there's there is something interesting here about the riots fields as these manufactured images 
that can just completely strip complicated realities as related to race and class and just completely strip them of their uh, significance. And also going back to what both of you were saying, obviously, this is a very distinctively American condition of civil resistance being met with militarized police violence. But it did also got me thinking about kind of like the, the bleakness of the backdrop that we're living and working against here in the UK, specifically in relation to the government's campaigns to restrict the right to protest and to, to give police more powers to curb protests and this overt criminalization of uh, striking workers. You know, at the end of the day, a, a pig's a pig. <laughs> uh, please don't come for us, Metropolitan Police, but yes, agreed. <laughs> uh, we should get some scores on this. Michael, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I'd probably say three, three, four overall. And sort of what I said, I think the message is very strong. It's very galvanizing and it has lived, in, lived on in my mind very strongly. I feel that some of those interventions into the use of archive, the, the music um, and some of that very artistic pointless stuff that Marina mentioned was in the moment I wasn't so so hot on that. But three, three, four overall. The famously harsh Michael Leader. That is actually high praise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Marina, what about you? I think it would be fours across the board for me. I thought overall it was a very impressively constructed documentary. It, it has a clear goal and it very carefully executes that. And it felt really, really focused. And like Michael, like it has stayed in my mind since uh, since first watching it. Yeah, I think I met fours across the board as well. I was I was really moved by it and just, well, utterly depressed as well. But it sort of speaks to a reality which it feels is not being acknowledged a lot of the time and the sort of hellishness that we're in. You feel a little bit mad being like, no, this really isn't okay. So in a way, it was kind of confirmed a lot of what I already understood about the world. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Next up, Blind Willow Sleeping Woman. A giant talkative frog, a lost cat, and a tsunami help a bank employee, his wife, and a schizophrenic accountant to save Tokyo from an earthquake and find meaning in their lives. 
I mean, that is quite a vague description, Michael. Do you want to kind of maybe get into what this is really about? Well, this is splicing together several short stories from the collections of Haruki Murakami. So some of those, actually almost all of those threads that you that you put together in that synopsis are were separate short stories that are being wrapped together. The director, writer, composer, voice actor, Pierre Fulders, or Fulds, has brought all these stories together and reset them in the few days after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake, which is a horrific disaster that the the aftershocks culturally are still felt today in Japan. But he's using that as the setting for this. And it's animated. And Huriki Murakami's stories generally held up to be unfilmable, although that's becoming less and less true as the years go by, because we now have two modern classics adapted from his work in Burning and Drive My Car. But what hasn't really been done so far is a, an adaptation of his more supernatural, magical, realist type work. And that's what this is. That's where that talkative frog comes in. <laughs> and the idea of being able to quell the worm that lives under Tokyo that is uh, fed by the bad vibes above and causes natural disasters, uh, which is sort of, that's the sort of wraparound. But really that only comes in and out of focus as we follow other characters, it, generally exploring the themes that Murakami explores in his work. So you know, awkward, disaffected men, inscrutable, sexy women, cats, and there's not so much jazz in this one, uh, but there is a big reference to classical Hollywood where a something like 11-year-old mentions a John Ford Western, which is probably the most magical realist element of this entire film. <laughs> oh God, when you put it that way, this seems like incredibly ambitious because this is a feature debut, am I right? Yeah, he's he's mainly worked as a composer over the years, but he's made shorts as well. So yeah, very ambitious conceptually. I must say, I don't think it really pulls it off. You know, we can talk about Burning and Drive My Car to, Till the Cows Come Home, but those two films were epic films, two and a half you know, plus films, hour-long films, that were adapted from short stories. So the filmmakers would take one short story or one and a half of take bits and pieces and adapt it into longer pieces. This guy here, Pierre, is just packing them in uh, into one film. And also, he's a first-time filmmaker working in animation, and I suppose it's a your mileage may vary. I'd be interested to see what you two think, because I'm probably the animation nerd on the show, about what the animation looked like and felt like. We were talking earlier, Layla, about stylish animation versus ugly animation versus trad and conventional animation. Um, for me... The animation style in this creates a sort of baseline of reality that can then be slightly warped and bent as needed. So when a you know six foot tall talking frog wanders into an accountancy office, it doesn't feel that strange. Or when a dozing salaryman on his morning commute dreams that the train he's on turns into a giant worm that's rocketing through Tokyo. It doesn't break or bend the reality of the world too much. But it's not necessarily an animation powerhouse of style or anything, I don't think. I, it definitely took me a little while to warm up to the animation. And for the, I think for the first 10 minutes, I found it quite unsettling. Not ugly, but just kind of slightly... I don't know, something slightly eerie about it. But then as I kind of settled into the magical realism of it all, it kind of made more sense. Marina, what about you? How did you find that animation? Yeah, I would have to agree. I think that in theory, using the rotoscoping method would be a good way to bring in the magical realism into the world it creates. But I did think it was a bit 
bland. Although I did like the kind of opaque NPC figures uh, on the on the metro trains. I don't know. I thought overall, I thought it it started off really really promising, and it just gradually lost its way. I would have to agree with with Michael. I'm, I'm not convinced that kind of combining so many different stories into one was the best way to kind of extract the most out of this adaptation. Um, I just don't think there was enough space to kind of dig into the material and and stretch it and, and play with it. I'm also so intrigued by this idea of resetting it in 2011. So obviously for Japanese citizens and Japanese people, this is a, a moment. It's like 9-11 in the States uh, you know, in terms of the, the devastation with, you know, within the culture. But for somebody who is not from Japan, Pierre is, is based in France, I think, but his sort of parents are Hungarian and British and he's lived all over the world. And using stories that might have been written from the 1980s all the way up to the early 2000s, it's an interesting you know, button to put on this. And I'm not sure, it, it gives the film, the stories, this tension of the world could end every any day and therefore gives context to these threads of memory and loss and regret. Each story has an element of that. So one man, you know, his his wife, who is his cast, is being depressed, uh, staring at the news on the TV. She disappears one day and leaves him on his own. He's also going to lose his job. He's given, given this offer to to go on guard and leave, and he travels around Japan to. While he's figuring that out, he also loses his cat. The, my favourite story of the bunch, I think, is one in the middle, which um, is adapted from a story of Murakami's called Birthday Girl, which is one the one I think best cracks that sense of reality slightly warped about a woman who on her 20th birthday is uh, given the task of taking a meal in the restaurant she works at up to the owner, who is this sort of shady guy who, not sh- well, shady in the sense of he's occluded rather than shady as a character. And he says, I will grant you one wish on your 20th 20th birthday and of course we don't really know what that wish is but then we see how her life has panned out and what that wish could have been so there are some interesting threads in there but I, d- I don't know it's it's something that comes up time and again in reviews of Murakami adaptations because Murakami is much more a writer of vibe and tone as as well as story and working within genres he does as well but uh, this one really does try to capture a tone and a vibe doesn't it rather than necessarily flesh out characters or incident. And do you think that is kind of inconsistent throughout or is it just generally lacking? It, en- it ends up feeling like quite an overstuffed and a little bit long, I suppose. Some some elements better than others. And that blankness or um, flatness of the animation, as you say, Marina, is based, I think some of it, the characters at least, are based on rotoscoping where they film or they paint over you know, r- r- live action footage. But you compare this to any of Richard Linkletter's rotoscoped works, which really do go on psychedelic journeys in terms of what they represent in the animation. This one is quite flat in what it's representing. So when you're approaching that subdued, maybe, or troubling, eerie tone of Murakami, it can be very easy to fall into it just being quite a quite a flat line of a film. So rather than it being inconsistent, it just sort of doesn't have many peaks to the troughs i suppose for you marina in terms of troughs i mean let's let's just be negative (laughs) what were kind of your what were the weakest elements for you i mean this is uh probably not kind of like in detriment to the film and and more kind of like a personal beef i have with murakami as a writer and i am probably like preaching to the choir here and i'm not I'm not the first person to ever say this but the way that the guy just writes women is just so yikes like it it just overall whenever I've tried to kind of engage with this fiction it 
it's it makes me uncomfortable in a really distracting way that keeps his writing from ever clicking with me because there's this kind of omnipresent icky male gaze so yeah the fact that overall I, I don't think that this worked as a as a as an adaptation I just think why would you kind of take that element and, and and decide to kind of like run with that um and go full steam ahead so yeah I would say that that uh made me quite uncomfortable yeah I, I think that's um incredibly fair so should we get some scores on this Marina do you want to go first I would say it's threes across the board for this one like I said uh ultimately just a bit bland it felt too deliberately weird to truly kind of have a, a resonant effect but uh, justice for frog though like I, I loved that character I wish the whole film was about uh that that frog story oh no I, I agree <laughs> he's delightful and the voice performance is uh, yeah. I think a real highlight uh, Michael what about you well, so you're both saying he should stick to voice acting because that's the director who voiced the role. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably say 332 overall. I, as, as, as I said, I feel this is an adaptation that's maybe straining under the weight of adapting Murakami rather than uh, more confident filmmakers such as uh, you know Hamaguchi or Lee Chang-dong who really contributed something and particularly on that male gaze characterization of women point I think both Drive My Car and Burning do something much more interesting with, with that and as an, as an animation as well I didn't find this particularly outstanding I will if I could make two quick recommendations based off this so Super Frog Saves Tokyo which is the um, short story that provided the frog story that's the wraparound thread in this film also inspired the new Makoto Shinkai film Suzume, which is out in April. Shinkai has said many times that Murakami is his favourite writer, but of course he works in young adults, massive feelings, big emotions, uh, anime, like your name. And Suzume is his film tackling the national trauma of the 2011 Tohoku earthquake through the high concept of there being uh, worms coming out of portals around Japan that the young people have to stop because otherwise more devastation will happen. So it's a really fascinating thing to see side by side that there are two, essentially two adaptations of the same short story side by side. And the other thing is Pierre Fold's dad, Peter Fold's, was an animator, a really groundbreaking animator. I'd recommend looking up his film Hunger or Le Femme, uh, which was from the mid-1970s and was a groundbreaking CGI film from then. It's like seven or eight minutes long. And that's one where just the animation you're looking at just looks wild, what they're, what he's doing. So maybe t- two chases there if you do go and see it or something instead. I mean, those, those both sound amazing. I didn't realise that he was kind of a... I don't want to say Nepo baby, but like uh, came, <laughs> comes from an animation dynasty. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for myself, probably similar, like a threes across the board. I, I, I generally do quite like Murakami. I think I'm able to engage with, um, with his work with that kind of pinch of salt around uh, the way he portrays women, the same way I do when I watch Spike Lee movies. Um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of found it quite an enjoyable, lyrical, gentle 90 minutes or, or so, but I, I, it's not anything that I particularly... I'm desperate to return to. Next up, it's Film Club. Toro recalls his life in the 1960s when his friend Kazuki killed himself and he grew close to Naoku, Kazuki's girlfriend, and another woman, the outgoing, lively Midori. So, I mean, we say that um, this isn't a writer who's necessarily 
got the most adaptable of works. Norwegian Wood is kind of, I suppose, one of his more straightforward stories. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So this is free of the magical realistic aspects and it is much more of a study in memory and loss and love. And once again, the, the two binary opposites of women, the inscrutable kind or the over-sexualized kind. So th- to go back quickly to Blind Willow Sleeping Woman, there's a, there's a line in that film where somebody's asked about what they did when they were 20 and they said, that's far too long ago, I couldn't possibly remember. And I was, as you can imagine, as a 16-year-old boy, 17-year-old boy, I was very into Marika Kami and hoovered up his books and I can't remember a single thing of them <laughs> apart from the vibe and the tone but this film I remember when this film came out and I was very excited because I, as we said very rarely adapted Murakami is and I was disappointed at the time it's quite interesting flashing back to March 2011 a time before Letterboxd and I pulled out my um, my Google Doc where I would log my, my my ratings of all films I saw and I gave it two and a half stars and um, just to give you a flashback to the film landscape of the time I went back on Rotten Tomatoes and this sort of did have like a sort of three out of five three and a half star kind of reception at the time apart from one guy who rode out five out of five from a young time out writer called David Jenkins <laughs> uh, so we d- d- got got fans at Team Little White Lies I also loved uh, the poll quote from um, Robbie Collin in his previous guise as the reviewer of News of the World, the uh, long-shuttered red-top newspaper. Uh, his pull quote for this for a four out of five review is, you know me, I'm flaming always in the mood for two and a quarter hard-going hours of sex and crying, and if it's in Japanese, so much the better. Uh, I've never heard a person's personality more accurately summed up. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose that's what this is. It's looking back at the late 1960s, the student days of the main character. He starts off as sort of slightly asynchronous in terms of its um, timeline, but but at the start of the story, he's part of a love triangle with his best friend and his best friend's girl. His best friend commits suicide, and there's this tentative relationship between him and the girl who's played by Rinko Kikuchi, probably the um, the most recognisable member of the cast in this film. And it follows the main character as he goes to university against the backdrop of the musical pop culture revolution, student protests, all of this um, major upheaval in society while he mopes around and has iffy relationships with women left, right and centre. Yeah, I, I read this book and then watched the film when I was kind of far too young because I think it really does benefit with the kind of hindsight on youth rather than actually being within it. But Marina, we've got some interesting female characters in this. <laughs> I mean, how did Hi. you how did you enjoy uh, their portrayal? I mean, like both of you, I, I, I read this book when I was very young. I think I was about 16. So I really can't speak to the film's kind of faithfulness or not to the source material. But I do remember not being a huge fan. And I can say that that applies to the film as well. You know, again, the women are just literally like shadows of characters there's there's nothing kind of like meaningful to them uh, even though that there is just so much to explore there overall like I, the film just looks absolutely stunning just the the cinematography is really spectacular thought the performances were great so i i have to give it that but ultimately it's just so meandering and melodramatic and i didn't think there was any chemistry between between the leads and I think overall the, uh, the common consensus uh, on Letterboxd at least is that this is the the Spike Lee's old boy of Murakami adaptations. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Indeed. 
<laughs> but yeah, on, on paper, I really think I should have loved this because the soundtrack is filled with songs of the period, lots of songs by Can, who I love. The score is a Johnny Greenwood score. You've got cameos from two of my favorite Japanese musicians, Harimi Hosono and Yukio Takahashi from Yellow Magic Orchestra. But yeah, it really, again, sort of like Blind Willow Sleeping Woman, straining under the weight of trying to translate a tone of Murakami or a feeling or vibe of Murakami to screen. It's very subdued, very melancholy, very slow. And that's the sort of approach to cinema, particularly in an emo mode, as this one is. You can just tip over into being uninvolving, particularly if you're not going to fill out the characters. Of course, I, I agree with you, the female characters are very paper thin. I don't particularly find the male characters even any more interesting you know compared to as you, as we say with burning and drive my car where characters are very compelling whether you empathize with them or not and the photography is gorgeous uh, maybe if not for the uh the sexual content i wouldn't be surprised to see this like chopped up into tiktok reels because uh, it really is in every frame a painting kind of film the cinematography is by uh, the cinematographer previously worked on millennium mambo with ho xiao shen and was the co-cinematographer on in the mood for love so it, re- it really is just beautifully shot all the way through it's just is there much really happening beyond that is the big question i'm surprised that that there are only maybe four or five major murakami adaptations and that you've got two big ones to beat i'd I'd like to go back and rewatch the other one that i remember watching as a kid um, which was tony takitani which came out a few years before norwegian wood and that is like a 75 minute long film it really doesn't try to pad out a short story i'd like to see how that ranks alongside this one so marina before we move on any last thoughts on norwegian wood um yeah like like michael said like the you know, you can obviously rely on, on Johnny Greenwood for a good soundtrack. Yeah, I just thought overall it was just trying very hard to be very, very serious. And also the main character is his name, Watanabe. What, so what does he have that just makes all these women just like not able to help themselves and just begging to sleep with him? Yeah, it's just just well, another. You don't very... remember being a student. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Just a number of not very <laughs> impressive men that are just being flocked to. I recall from then. Yeah, that, that seemed very realistic to me. Yeah, yeah, he had a very different university life to me. I was mostly in the library, sadly. But um, what, one thing I'd say before signing off, maybe between those four films of, adapted from Murakami, Burning, uh, Drive My Car, Tony Takitani, and this one, uh, maybe the quality of the films themselves are kind of variable, but the soundtracks are all great. So... Tony Takitani's soundtrack was uh, composed by Ryuichi Sakamoto, and it's this beautiful minimal piano score. Of course, Burning, Drive My Car, great soundtrack. So uh, that's my big theory about Murakami adaptations. The films might not be great all the way through. Soundtracks are brilliant. Very fair enough. Uh, So we can move on to our one last thing that we do to end the podcast. Marina, you're going to give us a recommendation for something to seek out that is not a movie. I love this bit of the podcast. So I will recommend a book called In the Miso Soup, which is a book by another writer with the name Murakami. His name is Ryu Murakami. He's also the writer of Audition. Uh, so from that alone, you can you can probably gather that he's a writer who is much more morbid and twisted than Haruki Murakami. Uh, so the book In the Miso Soup, it's a very short novel. I think it's only about 200 odd pages Uh, And it's a pulp thriller about sex tourism and nightlife in Tokyo. It it follows this tour guide who makes a living on the fringes of Tokyo's sex industry. And 
I don't want to say too much, but uh, it it kind of plays out like a weird B slasher movie. Uh, it's very readable, uh, very kind of brazenly violent, um, but also very silly. God, I mean, if that kind of poor quote from Robbie Collins sums up his taste, give me a short novel with um, <laughs> some, <laughs> some violence and some pulpy thrills and some sex tourism and some Twitter. Thank you. That sounds awesome uh michael what about you oh there's no sex tourism in mine i'm afraid but this is asadora which is a manga series by the writer artist naoki urasawa and i thought about this with relation to this week because it's a story several volumes long and still in in publication so it's not we're not at the end of it yet but it uses the life of a young girl called asadora growing up in the back half of the 20th century in japan as a way of exploring the the time and the period. And it starts off with her experiences around Typhoon Vera, which is a typhoon that hits Japan in the late 1950s. And just she lived in a port town and basically half the town was just swept away by the typhoon. And she's trying to find her family. She falls in with a local, you know, layabout, small town, small time crook, but then finds that she is uh, prodigiously talented at flying planes. And it jumps forward into the 1960s with to- the Tokyo Olympics and the era that we're looking at in Norwegian wood. And it goes all the way up to the present day. But there's a magical realist aspect to it as well. It might be a bit of a spoiler, so I won't talk about it too much. But there may be monsters as well in this world. It's not just a perfect facsimile of our world. But it's a, he is... Urasawa is one of the great manga artists. Uh, Netflix are currently adapting one of his massive series called Pluto that's going to be out later in the year, I think. But um, Asadora is his his recent series, and it's just so compelling. I don't want to sound like a publication weekly column by saying that manga is the most exciting area of publishing right now, but uh, you can't deny when it's good and it's a 200-page digest. You get to the end and you're immediately on trying to find where it's in stock for volume two, volume three, volume four. And before you know it, you've got a whole shelf of the stuff. It's fantastic. God, it does just feel like, you know, when I was younger and I started being interested in manga, it was, you know, really difficult to find and you'd kind of really have to hunt it down. And the fact that you can now just get it at a click of the button. I mean, maybe Riotsville is speaking to like the current nightmare, but that has improved at least. There's something, yeah. Even in your local, you know, high street bookshop, the manga section is now huge. So if you're lucky and it's in stock, you know, there's there's a lot there. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, more animated fare from Super Mario Brothers and lots of loss of faith in Godland and Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Michael Leader and Marina Asciotti. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.